From Capital Broadcasting and WRAL Documentary, this is the WRAL Doc Podcast. I'm Cliff Baumgartner. If you've listened all season, you know we've been hanging out in the eye of the storm, talking all about wicked weather. From legendary superstorm Hazel to the recent destruction left behind by Hurricane Florence, we've explored how severe weather has changed lives and shaped history. Well, this week, it's our season finale. I know, I know, time flies. But to cap us off, I wanted to address a few questions I heard over and over again as I was preparing the show and listening back to our documentaries. Are we better prepared for the next big flood? Will there be another one? Calling it a 500-year flood doesn't mean it's going to necessarily be another 500 years before it, it happens. So, yeah, we, we can certainly be hit again, and, and we will. The question is when. Basically, what's next? What's next in weather, in forecasting, in preparation? Well, it turns out those are really tough questions without easy answers, but they're worth asking anyway. So this week, I'm switching things up. Instead of bringing back a doc from the archives, I've gone out and talked to folks who think about this stuff and asked them what they see on the horizon for wicked weather. And yeah, that means you're stuck with me for the duration of this entire episode. Sorry about that. So, let's start with the most basic question. What is the weather doing? With the talk of climate change and its effects everywhere you look, including this show, sometimes the outlook seems a little grim. But are storms really getting worse? To figure that out, It kind of seems like you'd need a crystal ball, right? Or better yet, a scientist. Thankfully, I found the latter. Yeah, my name is Kieran Batia. Uh, I am a climate science program lead at BP in London. And real quick, before we go any further, Kieran asked me to play this disclaimer as well. The, The comments that I make in this interview represent my own opinions and not the opinions of BP. Okay, legalese out of the way. Let's get to the good stuff. I wanted to talk to Kieran because of a project he worked on back at Princeton University a few years ago. I'll let him explain. I worked with a team of researchers at Princeton University looking at coastal risk uh, of severe weather due to tropical cyclones and specifically how climate change will affect that risk throughout the 21st century. To take a peek into the future a little, Kieran's team used a computer model called HIFLOR, or the high-resolution, forecast-oriented, low-ocean resolution model. And so just like on TV, you see a weather model with a, you know, a radar image. What we're doing is also solving on the similar kind of map, the, the equations of motion, and then coming up with what are the different values of the variables at each point. And so when we say a climate model, we're really basically taking different variables and values, for example, temperature and moisture, and saying, okay, this is the direction the air is moving. Here's how the model says the weather will evolve. Specifically, Kieran and his team were interested in how climate change could affect the formation and intensity of tropical cyclones. That's hurricanes to you and me. The high floor model shows that with climate change, we see that there will be more tropical cyclones and more intense tropical cyclones. And that's largely because they are shown to intensify faster in this model. So I would say that there is a slight signal that this model shows more storms, slightly more storms with the warming climate. Um, that's actually a unique result because previously the consensus in the field was that there should be less storms. Um, but the bigger signal and the, the, the most noticeable result from this model is that the storms that do form 
they will increase intensity in intensity faster. And therefore, there will be a lot more category four, fives, and beyond storms than, than what is observed today. And Kieran's research wasn't designed to look specifically at what kind of damage storms like this may cause, but he says when it comes to impact, intensity is a huge factor. Reaching a higher intensity, we know that the wind speed is higher, and that in many cases means there will be more damage. We also know that when a storm intensifies faster, right now our models do a bad job forecasting them when they intensify faster. So that suggests to us that also there will be more underprepared communities and more vulnerable communities in the future if this model is correct. So, yeah, on its face, that doesn't sound great. But Kieran is quick to warn that this is only one model. And as always, there's more science to be done. We need to make sure that we develop a consensus in the field that this is going to happen. Because this study is rep- represents one model at one resolution, and, and that's important to note. So this is saying, okay, well, it is a very well-behaved and high-performing model, but we do need to get agreement there. But as far as vulnerability and, and dealing with that, we know for a fact that the sea level is rising. It, the observations have told us that. We know that there is a relationship between air temperature and rainfall rate. So we know that the rainfall rate is increasing. So we do know the hazards will get worse. So it's a matter now of basically developing adaptation and resiliency in your coastal cities to make sure that these impacts don't cause more financial damage and human fatalities than need be. Earlier this season, I talked to WRAL-TV chief meteorologist Greg Fischel about all this, and he shared a similar sentiment. There is or has been an increase in, in the number of hurricanes and also specifically the number of, of really, really strong ones. It seems like every couple of years we're setting a new record for the lowest pressure ever observed or the strongest sustained wind ever observed. Uh, but <clears throat> again, there are many basins all around the world, like, you know, the Atlantic Basin, the Pacific Basin, the Indian Ocean Basin. And you can't look at trends in any one basin and equate that with a global trend. Uh, We've had quiet periods in the United States, you know, where uh, we don't have that many hurricanes that form in the Atlantic. And, uh, and, And again, you have to look at that. There is a cyclical nature to climate, you know, and which is well documented. And there are periods of time where it's really active. There are periods of time when it's not. But you really have to look at the big picture, you know, the entire globe, you know, what's going on there. You know, some of the warmest water in the world is in the Western Pacific. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's pretty easy for, for a strong hurricane to spin up, you know, over there and affect, you know, Japan and Taiwan and, and, and all of those areas, you know, Asia. Um, and so, you have to look at that whole thing, you know, not not just our backyard, you know, but the whole globe. So we need to look globally when we evaluate things like climate, but the weather is something that affects us both locally and personally. And there's a lot we need to think about there, too. I mean, when we think about storms and the destruction they cause, we seem to have a base understanding of how that works, right? Uh, the wind blows really hard, it knocks stuff down, and that's bad. And if storms get worse and the wind blows harder, that's going to be even worse. I'm simplifying, clearly, but that's how we think about it. Only, that's not nearly the whole picture. The real problem underlying that is the growth of population and the growth of wealth. 
That's Jay Barnes. We've heard from him several times this season. Jay is a hurricane historian and author who looks at storms not just from a meteorological perspective, but a personal one. And he says one of the biggest challenges we face when it comes to hurricanes isn't just that the storms are coming to us. It's that we're going to the storms. When you look back at a storm like Hazel in 1954, a Category 4 coming ashore, um, I think there were 354 cottages on Oak Island. 352 of them were swept away into the marsh or destroyed. Uh, Well, today there's probably 7,000, 10,000, I don't even know the number of of permanent residences uh, there on the island. And uh, so the changes that have occurred have been, uh, have set us up for large dollar damage disasters. Doesn't necessarily mean more people are going to die, but our our experiences with hurricanes uh, coming ashore, particularly along the coastal areas, um, we've, we've got more in harm's way. We have more farms, factories, businesses, condos, shopping centers, um, p- places that uh, are going to be impacted by the next big storm. And so the cost is going up. And any charts you look at, whether it's North Carolina or nationwide, you're seeing that. So Jay's point here is that even if storms weren't getting bigger and faster, which again, they most likely are, their impact is getting worse simply because we have more to lose. The population is going up. Areas that used to be rural aren't anymore. And on top of all of that, the storms aren't just affecting the coast. What really got people's attention, I think, was just in the last couple of decades is that we uh, we have seen some hurricanes that were urban disasters. And the most you know, often cited examples, of course, are Katrina and Sandy. Uh, and you could also add Harvey in Houston. Uh, these are hurricanes that bear down on major metropolitan areas. And that hasn't happened that many times in, in the United States history. Uh, the Miami hurricane of 1926 stands out as, a, as an example. Um, but uh, when was the last time New York City was hit by a major hurricane? I think it was 1894. Um, so when you get a major storm, of, with a significant impact hitting a major metropolitan area, that's when you're talking about $100 billion disasters. Okay, so at this point, I've probably scared you straight into a storm cellar, but the news here isn't all grim, because for as long as we've been studying the weather, we've been creating technology and systems to help us understand it better. I talked to WRAL-TV meteorologist Elizabeth Gardner about this. She looks at this stuff every day, and her outlook is surprisingly optimistic. So here's how it's changed. Number one, our satellites are improving. So NOAA, uh, branch of the government, launches new satellites every few years. And the latest generation of satellites takes more pictures in higher resolution. So you're getting better data. You're watching these storms in more detail developing. And again, that satellite image is, is really key when we're talking about hurricanes. Um, also, the instruments, um, there, there hasn't been a, a lot of change really with the hurricane hunters. You know, they've been flying into storms for decades, um, but that's really critical information. So um, they fly in, they take those readings, and then all of that goes into the computer models. And here we're seeing changes. The more data that we can put into those computer models, the more accurate the forecast will be. And more and more models are running all the time. Um, 15 years ago, there may have been only a handful of runs of the computer models. And now, you know, you may in a day have hundreds of runs of computer models, I will say that sounds really great, 
but in some cases it can add to the confusion <laughs> because you have so much data to look at you got to be able to then whittle it down and make a determination so the more data you have the better awesome go out and collect more data problem solved right except of course it's more complicated than that for one thing this data collection it's expensive here's how it all works all these observations are funded by the government so that's the big key um, does congress see that it's important um, and if so and if they allocate more money then our forecasts get better that's been the case all along um, the flip side of that is scientists doing research so uh, meteorologists are doing research as to how to make our our data collection better but we have to have money for that and when i say we I'm not talking about TV stations or, or broadcasters or anything like that. All of this is coming from the government because it is, it's very expensive. Um, there was a, a sort of a hullabaloo maybe a year or so ago about the European model. And everybody's using the European model because it's more accurate. Because um, in Europe, they were spending more money on collecting data. Mm. And we stepped up our game in the United States. And, and both of the models, they, they have their strengths. Um, but the American model is coming around you know, to have uh, you know, as good a data as the as European model. So, so that's, what we're that's where we're headed. You know, I hate for everything to come down to money, but, but that's, that's really the thing. The more money we spend on collecting data, the better these forecasts will be. For a lot of people, this idea that we have to rely on the government, of all things, to fund these systems which could save lives and property might not inspire much confidence, particularly when it comes to base-level stuff like infrastructure. It's hard to cut on a newscast right now without hearing about the state of America's infrastructure, from bad roads to failing bridges, you name it, and all of that only gets more complicated when severe weather comes in. To discuss that, I called up this guy. I'm Steve Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T, and I'm the Assistant Communications Director for the NCDOT. A lot of the talk about infrastructure is on a national level, but the DOT has the benefit of just looking at North Carolina and its specific needs. And that's a front where Steve says, though sure it would be great to have more money, don't get me wrong, there's already been a lot of success in finding new technology that allows them to be better prepared. For example, we can now monitor creeks that you, know, you wouldn't think of as going to affect flooding, but those creeks feed into the rivers. And we can tell when those creeks are starting to rise and get worse. And we can tell from the models when that water is going to get to the Noose River or whatever, and when that river is going to rise and how much it's going to rise. Is that going to threaten a bridge? Do we need to be ready? Do we need to stage equipment there? Do we need to move other people? So and we do that all the time. We also talk to other states, like we're sharing information with South Carolina or Florida. With other, What did you do that worked? What did you do that didn't work? Maybe we were doing the same thing, and it turns out they ran to a snag that we haven't yet, but we could. So there's a giant exchange of information on anything weather-related, um, different ideas. And Steve says that process, sharing ideas, improving all the time, it's nothing new. It's what we've always done, and if you stop and look around, you can see the impact of it pretty easily. Oh, we have all along here, an example be for longtime residents in, for example, the Raleigh area that remember how, what, an inch of ice or so back on made I-40 gridlock a few, I don't know how many years ago it was. In fact, kids never got home from school that day because they couldn't, buses couldn't, everything was shut down. Well, that happened before we started brining. And we've not other states use a salt brine solution, which we do, you know, in cases we know that something's coming in, it's sleet or snow. 
And brining has been our biggest and fortunately a cheap, easy way to help prevent freezing. And that's one of those things that we evolve and say, hey, another state used this. Let's do that. So I'm optimistic just because every state's in the same situation. You have some very smart people who are getting together, coming up with solutions. Maybe this test, this state over here does the testing and we do testing of something else, so it helps save money. But I think there's a very, very smart people involved, and there are companies involved that can make a lot of money on their research and providing help and assistance and coming up with plans and how to, to counter things and how to handle floodwaters or snow and ice. We're getting better at it because we're studying more and more, learning from each incident. And again, technology, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have the brining. So if a snow and ice storm came and it hit a roadway, then those things are snow and ice covered, and then we'd have to go out and plow. But now we can help. That helps us clear roads faster. Technology, the flooding, we can now go in and we can take a look at a map and see, hey, in history, this road floods every time it rains more than two inches. You know, we can, we can go in and maybe do some prep work ahead of time, make sure a culvert is clear or whatever. Or we can see, well, that never gets flooded, so we don't have to worry about that yet, but this area is in trouble. Or we can judge when the Noose River gets 10 feet above flood stage, these roads are going to be affected. Well, 10 years ago, we didn't have the capability of doing that. We have that now, and it's only going to get better. Working on this season of the show, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the weather. And not just the events themselves, but how we experience them. The human side of all this. And what I've realized is, part of the way we understand weather comes from what we see on TV or the internet. The big animated maps that allow us to look down from space as giant shifting blobs of color move across our city or our state or our country. And I think this perspective affects how we feel about weather. We look at it from a distance, this big amorphous thing that we can't control and are helpless to change. And hearing all this stuff, that the climate is changing, that storms are probably just gonna get worse, that we're likely to lose more and more in the process, it can make you feel pretty small. Which is why I think it's worth ending this season with a reminder that we do have something to say about what comes next, or at least how we respond to it. And just as the challenges and dangers grow, so do the tools and the knowledge and the people we have working on these problems. But we have to keep the pressure on. We have to listen and campaign and research and donate and prepare it. Basically, we have to keep doing what we've always done, and we have to keep getting better. So, what's next? I don't know, but I think we'll be ready for it. The WREL Doc Podcast is a production of WREL Documentary, part of the Capital Broadcasting Podcast Network. We're produced by Shelley Leslie and yours truly, Cliff Bumgardner. Our theme music is by Lee Roservier and Breakmaster Cylinder. If you've enjoyed this season of the show, please consider dropping us a review and sharing it with your friends. It really helps. Also, if you're interested in weather and these types of topics, WRAL is putting out a lot of content about that very thing. From our nightly newscast to our website, WRAL.com, to our weather app, and a whole lot more coming on the horizon. So please go online and check out all of that stuff. You can find all of our documentaries at WRALDocumentary.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Until next time. Thanks for listening.